This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Hi, welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. We've been listening to Susie Ibarra's Medienda One Snack from the debut recording of her trio Talking Gong with Claire Chase and Alex Pay on New Focus Recordings. In this episode of Sound Lives, I'll be talking with Susie Ibarra about her return to performing music for live audiences after a year of quarantine, her collaborative approach to working with other musicians, her explorations of jazz, classical music, traditional Philippine music, and even indie rock, drums as melodic instruments, and the gender stereotyping of percussion in different genres and cultures. You actually had a live concert last yes. week with a group of people. You were performing and there was an audience there. It's like... Really wonderful. Right. I was in shock at first to, to stand up and greet them before. And we talked about it with the ensemble. I said, well, will you announce it? Let them know because we're going to play a nonstop program. Yeah, I guess I'll be talking to audience that are in the same room with me. <laughs> I don't know how emotional I might get about that. I did a bit, but I mean, it was fine, but just the, because it was shocking in a wonderful way, but it, it was shocking. Like, well, here we are all together. And they were, they were so um, attentive, so kind. I think we were all just happy to be in the room and back in to our practice of attending or performing concerts. I mean, I want to do both. You know, I really miss that a lot. There are things about the last year and now it's almost like almost a year and a half, right, that have been very challenging, but there are also things that have been very good Mm. music-wise. Like, it's great that you can now see and hear performances that are happening all over the world. You can experience it live, as it were. It's also there after the fact. You know, I wasn't able to be at the roulette performance that you gave last week, but I watched it on roulette TV and I saw it and I heard it and this is incredible. And, you know, I hope that that continues. Obviously roulette was doing roulette TV before the pandemic. So they have a a, a tradition of making their live performances available to the world through the internet, but a lot of other people haven't. And, you know, maybe now this will be something that people do regularly. To have it also live streamed and archived. Yes. I think the one thing for a roulette is that they could archive really well everything right now. Everything is being archived well. And I think that's a, a plus. While this was your first performance with an audience, obviously the new album, the Talking Gong album, the, the trio, you were all recording in the studio last summer during yeah. the height of the pandemic, July 2020. I'm curious what that experience was like. Uh, Very special to be able to do that together in the heights of the pandemic. We were in a a hall here at SUNY New Paltz, which seats about 500 people. So it was a large stage. So we decided to record in the hall. I mean, the piano is very good in that hall too. And then um, I brought in an engineer, Eli Cruz, and he brought all his gear in. So it was just the three of us 
Eli recording, and then Tony Sinicola was um, taking photos for the album. And those are the only people that were in that hall. I was also set up on the ground where the audience was. And there was a piano up on the stage, and then Claire on flute, she was on my left. So we were pretty spread out. When we weren't playing, obviously, we were masked. And then also the two tech crew. And we had tested before coming in. I think we were very fortunate to be able to do that. I mean, you might have been physically separated in, in the studio, but it sounds like any chamber recording where people are all together and are interacting with each other and there's a real kind of camaraderie in terms of the sounds that are happening. Obviously, Claire, as a player of a wind instrument, can't mask up. And, you know, the most dangerous instruments are wind instruments and, and our voices, you know, singing. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's terrible that, you know, these things that are so precious that mean so much to us have now become potentially, you know, life-threatening. When the album released, we did another film recording of certain pieces. And I think just between that time, when we had recorded the album, we'd had another kind of wave of the pandemic. So we were still socially distanced in this hall. But at that time, even performing, Alex and I on piano and percussion, we were masked and Claire was not masked. When it was a solo piece, we were unmasked with everybody else. Also, again, the tech, it was like two tech people in a very large space, just having and everybody testing, making sure that everybody was testing right before coming in. I mean, that, that's what we have to do now. It's extraordinary. Yeah, because that was last summer. That was before there were vaccines available, before everything keeps changing. And I'm delighted that you released it on LP too, you know, it's just like this yeah. physical thing. But of course, you know, now that we're in this new era, it's like, we want to avoid anything that's physical because anything can be <laughs> like contaminated. But you know, it's, we're hopefully we're getting past that. You know, in between those things and before this live performance that just happened last week though, you also were able to do a solo performance at William Patterson College. And that's yeah. one of the few things that, musicians were able to do this last year were to perform alone. You know, that's like the safest thing you can do. Peyton McDonald, who's a marimbist and in the percussion department there, he invited me to come out and then I also spoke with the students. Well, I spoke with the students later on Zoom. <laughs> right. <laughs> I came in for the, that recording of the performance. Again, it was set up. We are playing these empty halls. It's all set up. You'd think a concert's going to happen, and it is, but it's just only a couple people and then they introduced me and then and I played that and, and spoke that was it I was just on stage but nobody else in the audience so I feel it's period music and period art and accepting that and I always if I'm in a situation that if I'm recording performing asking also the other performers even though we're starting to open up here how comfortable are they right and that was one thing for roulette they were still under quota so we decided to limit the audience even more and i wanted obviously the performers to feel comfortable and not feel nervous in that way about being endangered or endangering anyone even though we're all vaccinated and we covid test before these we still have this feeling right right of course yeah it's gonna it's gonna take a while for that to transition out 
but to the positive aspect, one of the things that struck me about the William Patterson gig, which I thought was amazing, is it allowed me to see and hear you as a musician, as a creator, in a different way. You know, I've listened to all these recordings, so I'm just hearing them, I'm not seeing them. And then when I'm seeing a performance, I'm in the audience, so I'm not like in front watching you do what you do. But it was just incredible to have the camera work on that and to see you seamlessly go from playing one of the drums in the drum kit with your hands and then rubbing the surface and then going to brushes and then going to sticks. It was just this wonderful evolution of sound that you've probably done this in other contexts, but I wasn't cognizant of it because I was not able to experience it with that level of detail, which we now can have being able to see this thing. Oh, that's wonderful. And I thought it was a great jumping off point because obviously, you know, the thing we want to talk about with each other is is music, not the coronavirus, right? I'm happy you heard and saw that. I felt that was a really good solo for me that day. I felt really good coming out of that performance. I played that performance the day before uh, one of my dear mentors passed away. So Milford Graves, oh. he passed the next afternoon. I had a kind of spiritual visit from him while I played in one piece. I ended up playing some rhythms that he had directly taught me. And I also got to share that with his wife afterwards. I said, I had this spiritual visit. I was very happy when it happened. Like it was a very joyful feeling. Wow, it's so interesting because I... I heard Milford Graves in there. I actually did. You know, this is amazing. I didn't connect the dates because I obviously listened and heard after it happened. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what an unusual thing solo drum set is as an experience. I mean, you've certainly done, you know, several projects like that. But before that, there have been only a handful of examples. I'm thinking, you know, Max Roach's Drums Unlimited, Ginger Baker did some solo percussion stuff. And then yeah. Milford Graves, the melodies of the drums, you know, and all bringing out all of that stuff. I totally, totally heard that. That's really wonderful. Yeah, it was a special moment. But I've said this before. I always do when I sit down at the drums. I, I meet him because he's one of my great mentors and he was brilliant. So it's a part of my language. A lot of people studied with him, but I was very fortunate to study drums with him. <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit of Susie Ibarra's Drum Sketch Number 4 from her 2007 solo album Drum Sketches, released on Innova. want to go all the way back. You were playing the piano when you were four years old, right? And I sang in choir. Those were my first instruments. I didn't start playing my percussion until I was a teenager. Most of uh, my siblings played piano and guitar and also sang pretty much all of us except for one of my brothers. So there's five of us. And my mother, um, she wasn't a musician, but she was a serious aficionado. You know, she loved it, music and So she was the one who put me both in music and in visual art. And then I grew up in Houston going to the opera with her because my mother loved opera. 
So I grew up going to um, the Houston Opera with my mom. I was the lucky one. I think just all of it, you know, just kind of seeped in. Yeah, and actually, when you were there, that was when David Gockley was running the Houston Grand Opera. So you got to hear new operas too, right? Yes. But also, you played in punk rock bands, right? I did in in high school. I started playing. I did both. I mean, I sung in choirs at school and in church. We used to, in the community, host Philippine choirs that would come through. So I played piano and organ in church, and then I started playing drums when I was sixteen, and I got invited into this punk band and. The only thing was that I wasn't allowed to play shows on weeknights because it was school nights. <laughs> kind of makes sense. I mean, I think about that. It's a pair makes sense. But in terms of the aesthetics, you know, church, choir, and punk rock are, are like <laughs> total opposites, right? I know. I know. So funny. Your family was okay with the punk rock? Yeah, I don't think they knew to what extent the whole, you know, oh, it's just these playing drums, you know. I think if things were falling apart, they might question, what are you doing? But yeah, I was just playing music. Now, you mentioned Philippine groups coming in at that point, but this is before any of your immersion into traditional Philippine music, I imagine. Yeah, this is before. This was all choral music, so we would have choirs come through. I don't think I ever saw a kulitang gong a philippine gong instrument until i was at my uncle's also as a teenager and then um in new york i played um three gong ensembles that was really important to me sonically and it's interesting so when i was also studying on a drum set certain sounds that i heard and then what i gravitated to but then when i would go to the studies i was obviously studying a lot of the sounds that i wasn't hearing naturally because maybe my palette in there was much more metal, right? With metal and brass and copper and also bamboo, but how to you know move more onto the skins and the wood and certain things, just how to bring those elements together. Uh, so it's interesting. So I thought I would go to certain teachers at that time to study sounds that I was gravitating to and it would be completely opposite what my ear wasn't yet hearing. We talk about mentors and looking for role models for things. You know, I'm thinking about how unprecedented it is to feature a drum set as a soloist or alone. But you know, the other thing that's unusual now, less so, but certainly, you know, 25 years ago, more unusual was having a female drummer behind yeah. a drum yeah. kit. Well, I know you've talked about in Philippine tradition that mm -hmm. the men traditionally play the strings and the women play the percussive instruments, which is the opposite of so yeah. many world cultures. But you yeah. weren't aware of that yet. I wasn't aware of that until I was a young adult. I think, you know, Korea has some of that. They have specific percussion music that's for women specific. But this literally was from the matriarchal society. Putting gender on instruments has always been a strange thing for me because it has affected all of us as human beings. And it's all these inanimate objects that, that we culturally have put gender on. And I mean, I've thought about this for a year, how strange it is. It depends on the lens you're looking at or listening at it from. And that culturally will put gender on instruments. It affects us. And certainly the way it plays out in various genres, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, you were playing punk rock. You know, there mm. are very few examples of women drummers, you know, the Velvet Underground. Right, you know, right. 
but that's so unusual. And then, you know, in the early 80s, actually, Ikue Mori, you began yeah. her career as a drummer in DNA with yeah. Ardo Lindsay. But there are very few role models aside from like all girl bands. And then in jazz, you know, yeah. even less so. Here in the US, I feel hopeful for the younger generations and hopeful about all of these very difficult issues on gender and race and how that's playing out and what can be in a moment that it could be a moment for change, you know, hard change. When I hear that, especially when I see certain younger generations and their voices and how they're able to voice this politically right now and socially. I'm really happy and hopeful. I think in my generation, I think there's certain things that just weren't even touched or addressed because there were still other things. There were just loads of problems and not being able to find how to connect with others who, who may be feeling like the other or the minorities or so, and so forth, where I think we have a moment, especially with all this technology, we can connect today. So that is different, right? I mean, sometimes it's tiring because we think, wow, has it really changed? We have the same problems. This has been going on forever. It's really exhausting. And, and on that side, it's like, wow, it's really exhausting. But I think with the way we are interconnected right now, it is a possibility. I would have made different choices, probably, how I would have addressed things than how I would deal with things earlier. Well, yeah, you you I leapt just, right in, <laughs> you know, or so it also, seems, you know. Oh, that, that's kind. I also decided to like move in directions that I would because I really just wanted to be able to create great music and be around people who wanted to create music and art, and not be a token that was politicized for other people's ways for them to write the stories of what is socially going on. I just wanted to create music and art. <laughs> so I thought I need to gravitate with like-minded people who are putting that first. So the story of you getting aware of jazz, growing up jazz wasn't really a part of your world. I heard the story somewhere. I'd love to hear your mm. version of the story of being okay. a college student at Sarah Lawrence yeah. and going to a Sun Ra orchestra gig. I first heard jazz though in Houston. So Thelonious Monk was probably the first artist I heard that was the jazz artist that I heard and really made my head turn and say, what's that? Who's that? And I went to my drum teacher and said, who's this? My mother liked mostly classical music, but she also, and my dad, liked big band music, old school big band music. So I did hear that or some of the singers. My dad was a big fan of Nat King Cole. Thinking about Sun Ra and how it was connected to like Fletcher Henderson and that it's also big band, you know, Sun Ra's big band music. So I, you know, I didn't connect that until we're talking about this now, Frank. Actually, that is connected with me listening to music of my parents because they loved big band. When I was young, they visited, I was able to bring them to a show and they met him and they met one of my former drum teachers at a show. It was a wild show. They had like Brazilian fire jugglers. <laughs> we were in this club that was, I think, called Indigo Blue. And we had gone to see a Broadway play. We had gone to see Tony Randall play M. Butterfly. Oh, wow. And then we went afterwards to see Sun Ra at this club. And I swear, there maybe was like 10 of us in the audience. 
my parents and I are hanging out, you know, <laughs> sitting right there, and you know, all the performers and June came out singing, and wow. Sun Ra playing, and then they had these Brazilian fire jugglers. <laughs> they loved it because their first port of entry from the Philippines was the Bronx. And they used to live in the Bronx, and they were interns, they were physicians, and they used to go down to Harlem to listen to music. I had this a book by Art Taylor, Notes and Tones, one of his books, and my dad had picked it up. I was like, so-and-so still around? Is so-and-so still around? And that's when I knew, oh, they were going out to the shows. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. I, I just didn't think about that. My young parents in their tw early 20s going to Harlem listening to these shows when they just immigrated to, to the States. It's such a fun thing to think about. Well, the thing that I think about with Sun Ra and making the connection with you is, yeah, it's big band. It totally comes out of Fletcher Henderson. In fact, you can even hear earlier albums of the orchestra, like Sun Sound Pleasure, where you can, it's really kind of trad swing, right? Oh, I love that album. But then he does this thing, and where the music gets liberated, it gets mm -hmm. liberated because of the percussion. Mm. Suddenly, the percussion is this whole world and it isn't just a drummer it's a section you know often yeah. there'll be several percussionists often you'll have like members who play other instruments suddenly play percussion and it's about this whole universe of sounds sure also that he was you know the one of the first to bring in the moog and synthesize with yes. in this kind of style with the piano and what he did with that was so groundbreaking I had heard Sun Ra on like a Disney album. They had done a cover of Pink Elephants. That's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I had heard Pink Elephants and I wanted, they were coming through in Houston. They were going to play at the Miller Outdoor Theater and I had missed the show. Maybe less than two years later. I'm in New York, right? And I'm studying. And I convinced three of my friends to come out with me to New York City to Sweet Basil's to hear Sunra Orchestra, I said, I want to hear it live. And they fit in this small club, the whole orchestra fit on stage. I don't know, they were like, it's like busting out of the stage. Wow. It was not a big stage in that club. You know, of course they came out and they were in all of their performance costumes and it was magical. I thought I was just going to leave after, but I ended up talking to the drummer somehow. I don't know how, because I was not a very outgoing person at all. Definitely not. It's, it's like something I've had to learn to be later in my life and being a parent, but I was very a very quiet person. Somehow I talked to the drummer, and, and for a while I, I started studying with Earl Buster Smith, and he used to play with uh, Oscar Peterson. Right. I think New York gave this to me early on because you really could go to so many live venues and hear many of the masters in this style that I had a foundation of being able to hear this live. It wasn't that I was buying albums. I mean, I had some, but I, I wasn't like a giant collector. I wanted to go to the live performances. How did you get connected to William Parker? So, so when I, I moved to studying with Manis, he was starting an orchestra, which is Little Huey Orchestra. He was just starting it. Or I wonder if he was restarting it. I wonder if he had any iterations of it prior. I don't know. But you're on his first album as a leader with oh, that work. Okay. 
So that is the beginning. (laughs) They might have played live before, but they certainly didn't document it. Yes, in my memory, they were just starting it. So I used to go down, I was invited to rehearsal, which was downtown. I basically would come down after class from uptown to downtown when Manus was on 85th. Yeah, and then I would do rehearsals and back a ton of horn players. <laughs> and William had a regular gig at CPGB's gallery. So we used to play weekly there. That was really fun to like have a weekly gig in, in New York and work with a large band. I ended up playing a couple of a couple of ensembles with William. I think we were like rhythm section in seven bands. The very first time I became aware of you was on this amazing, amazing album, Go See the World, the David S. Ware Quartet, which is one of the great ensembles for incredible musicians. You, Matt Ship, William Parker, and, and obviously the, the now sadly late David S. Ware, but that record is like a watershed album in so many ways because it's like it's like this free group but it's on it's on a mainstream label it's on distributed all over the place what you did as a quartet on the way we were to my ears is akin to what john coltrane and his quartet did with my favorite things it's like that level of music making david had such a sound wow it was really powerful really big and uh, tremendous and and that kind of fluidity, how, how he moved through the music. That was a special album. You know, there you were in this quartet of these giants of music, and you were just sort of starting your yeah. career, and you're, you're an equal partner with them. I was just you so know? happy to play music. I mean, I think just the, the best way to keep growing and learn. And I was really a sponge just where I loved to play and wanted to play all the time. I still feel that way, but it expresses differently, right? It expresses differently in different times of our lives and it manifests differently. And that was very physical, like just wanting to be on the stage all the time. You know, something very different from that that you did soon thereafter is you were invited in by the indie rock band Yola Tango. Oh, yeah. To be part of several of their albums. I'm wondering, you know, how did that happen? Well, they love jazz and experimental jazz and free jazz. So they very much love the aesthetic. And I came in to play percussion with them. So some things I did were play small percussion. I also came in and I played timpani on one piece as like a bass. I played these these kettle drums that were um, the Butch Morris gave me that Gil Evans had given him. Now Talk about a lineage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And now housed in the uh, spillway sound of Eli Cruz. So they're being played. You know, it's important that these keep playing, being played. But they have the old style. So I was playing like bass lines on that. Oh, that's amazing. So like with the pedal doing yeah. like a bass line. Wow. Like I mean, walking bass. I studied some vibraphone with Warren Smith early on. But I really wish... To study timpani with him because I don't know if you've heard him play his walking bass lines and with Emblem, right? It's, right. It's beautiful. Amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful to see, to hear that when he does all of that pedal work. Yeah. yeah back to Max Roach again, who really yeah. you know brought out the melodies of drums. It's melodic playing, 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's often this like ridiculous thing that people say, oh, drums are unpitched. They're, that's so stupid, right? I know. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. <laughs> Who, who's decided on that for the vocabulary? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Another early group I want to talk about with you a little bit before we talk about your own projects is Mephista. Another one of these, like, you know, equal meeting of the minds with you, Sylvie Carvoisier and, and Kue Mori, was originally a drummer, but then was one of the first laptop virtuosas. It's interesting to compare that, I think, with the David S. Ware Quartet. Yeah, on the one hand, you, you have this group of all towering equal musicians, but in the service of David S. Ware's sound and vision in his compositions mostly whereas with Mephista you're all collaboratively creating the music together yes those are my dear old friends you know we were playing music for a long time and they're tremendous they're maestras both of them Sylvie and Ikue that was a super group for improvisation we did have also certain conceptual composition pieces, did a lot heavily improvisation together. Sometimes when we're playing pieces, you don't know who's making what sounds. I love that actually, because we're all really integrated in playing that music in the moment. Is she playing that? Was I playing that? Who was playing that? Let's listen to Mephista. This is from Poison Ivy from Mephista's 2002 debut album, Black Narcissus on Sadek. Music composed and performed by Sylvie Corvoisier, Susie Barra, and Ikue Mori. terms of the dynamics in the David S. Ware Quartet, you're the only woman, right? Yes. And then in, in Mephista, it's all women. Did that make a difference? Should oh, it sure. make a difference? It does make a difference. I mean, I think those dynamics and politics are still here, even though that was in an earlier time. And also, uh, Sylvia and Ikwe are dear friends, you know. You know, we're overdue to play. <laughs> we're overdue to play, but... And so it does make a difference. I think so many directions I could go with discussing that question. I'm not sure which which direction you would jump into because everything kind of floods at the same time. But but uh, does that make a difference? Does gender make a difference? Is that what you mean? What do you mean by the question? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what I mean because part of me doesn't yeah. want it to make a difference, right? Yeah, I mean, we're exactly. all at this point where we want to get past all of this stuff. And we, <laughs> no, of course not. And we certainly weren't 20, we certainly weren't 20 years ago. I wonder, because one group, even though you're all master players, had a sort of hierarchy to it. It was the mm-hmm. David S. Ware Quartet. Whereas Mephista, by even that name alone, it wasn't any one of yours group. It was a collectively led group. You know, that's a different kind of thing. But also, 
I'm thinking, you know, with the David S. Ware Quartet, I mean, you obviously had already done stuff with William Parker, so you had a connection there. But you were a relatively young player at that point, even though you sound like equals when you hear the recording, obviously there are hierarchies. Whereas, you know, with Mephista, there weren't, or at least I don't hear them. And I love how you say, you know, you can't tell who's making what sound and that's what's so exciting. And and in the back of my head, when you're saying, oh, we need to play together again, I'm like, please do it on video so I can tell who's playing what. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will be a video. Now that we're moving into this new era, I'm sure right. video with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. These are really great questions. I think the way that you word them allows me to think about these moments in my personal history in different ways that I maybe haven't had a reflection. So I, I do enjoy being able to articulate it with you. I haven't always articulated a lot of things that may have been really politically loaded, you know? Having been a young musician, I definitely went through it and had, like, with the naivety of all of a sudden having to wake up that, wow, oh, the world is like this. Because I was raised by a very strong mother. You know, she was um, a doctor, and I grew up in World War II in Manila. She's very bright. She skipped three grades. She graduated from med school when she was 22. It was never like, Susie, you can't do this because you're a woman. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't come from that culture. So I was really lucky, really lucky, because uh, in that particular style, in style, whatever genre of jazz it is, it's, it's very socially difficult, you know, to a point where to think, well, I can be empathetic and supportive to issues that are going on, but I also know that what my life path is, is, is a different than other people who are born into this, their life path. So I also can't just take on giant heavy stones on my back that are not gonna serve a purpose or be useful for, for anything. So initially, I think I just loved so much, a lot of this music and playing. I was also raised in a certain way. I didn't see it that way, but I certainly got schooled on how society saw it. And then it's the question of, do I want to accept that or do I want to not accept that? Right. But in terms of the question of comfort levels, were there things that you felt you were able to do? Were there risks that you were able to take maybe with Mephista that you couldn't necessarily do in the context of the David S. Ware Quartet. Maybe there weren't. I don't know. And musically? Are you musically, about yeah. Uh, no, I don't think I thought about it that way because also we're, I'm playing with different musicians, so I'm really kind of thinking in the moment, what, what do I need to play to create this music in the moment with these people in the room? And it's always different. Even if you think you're playing the same piece of music with different musicians come in, even if it's the same musicians and you're playing the same music, it's going to be different every night. These are different musicians, different music, different bands. So I'm not really comparing. Maybe if I was comparing another trio that had a certain aesthetic and instrumentation is the same, or another quartet that had a similar 
instrumentation and aesthetic of that quartet, then I think maybe a comparison would have come in, but they're really different. I was aware of that and, and how special, both Sylvia and Ikwe are very special, but um, Ikwe's vocabulary and, and Sylvia and I have being acoustic instruments and coming from different traditions that I would purposely not play certain musical references for Mephisto. And that was really not about jazz. I almost put these kind of limitations on myself of which vocabulary I was going to jump out of to not bring it into something that would maybe not be compatible with the other aesthetic of the other artists. I mean, I never really talked about that. I kind of sensitively knew that we were creating, but that that would happen in, in different ensembles. I know that certain moments I want to bring out this vocabulary because I can hear it and with other vocabulary for other musicians that I'm playing with or other band leaders or composers' works. And then what's really great is when you can come into a situation and whether it's it's an equal collaboration or if I'm playing an, a composer's work, that they can bring entirely new sounds. So Ryuichi Sakamoto is a composer that can get that out of me in the studio, which I feel very lucky like that I can come in and not just play my vocabulary differently, actually come out playing totally new things that I never played. You know, where I, I wanted to take it, which is why I wanted to spend so much time talking about this, is I think that sort of collaborative aspect and that idea of you wanting to bring out, you know, what the other musicians are doing is something that transfers over to things that you've created, ensembles you've led, things under your leadership and compositions that you've written. What strikes me is how you put musicians together in ensembles who come from totally different backgrounds, then bring out what they're able to do from the traditions they come from, but then kind of take it to places where none of you have been or to take it to something else. You know, I'm thinking now, obviously, Talking Gong, to musicians who come out of contemporary classical music practice, mm -hmm. which is a very different world than the improvisatory realm of jazz and free jazz. But, you know, even before that, the trio that you had with Craig Taborn and mm -hmm. Jenny Choi, he's coming out of the jazz world. She's coming out of classical music. And then the three of you perform together and it's not classical, it's not jazz, and you're having them do like Philippine traditional stuff. You know, I'm thinking of Folklorico, which has, you know, just such a wonderful range of stuff that's beyond the experience of any of these musicians, but they took it and made it their own through what you did. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I always had an affinity to have these virtuoso musicians that come from their crafts but are different and that, I think I've grown up in, in a hybrid world. You know, I grew up having my parents and siblings as immigrants, and I was born here in California. We grew up with a hybrid culture. So it's what I know. I don't know anything otherwise. And perhaps that's why it's affected culturally my music. But I, I love that aesthetic that Everybody has their own thing that's really special and it's different. And then what does it sound like when you've tried to create some music together? That sound, I'm not going to get that from a classical violinist. That's going to come from 
her background, right? If, if I bring a violinist from a different tradition, it's not going to have that same sound. And vice versa. You're listening to Susie Ibarra's Lakbe Gawain Ng Pamilya, number two, from her 2004 album Folklorico on Sadek, featuring Susie Ibarra on drums, Jennifer Choi on violin, Craig Taborn on piano, and special guest Wadada Leo Smith on trumpet. curious in terms of those strengths obviously people with a background in western classical music come out of a score-based tradition they're used to getting notated music on a page and the more articulation marks on it the better everything has to be very precisely fixed whereas people coming out of jazz you know maybe you know you'll get a chart but you're expected to bring your own interpretation to it and then you know, people coming out of folk traditions that music is passed around orally to each other and so those are all you know very very different learning modalities rehearsal modalities i wonder in process when you're composing how much of it is writing how much of it is interpretation how much is improvisatory like you know are jenny Choi and claire chase improvising Yes, on these things they are they are tremendous improvisers so also to break that taboo to know that classical musicians also are and can be tremendous improvisers i mean we know that it's not schooled for them whereas in jazz that's very much in the school so how they arrive there is amazing i mean claire's a phenomenal improviser i think that regardless of the background that the musicians that I am also currently playing with in ensembles. They're also really wonderful improvisers. So it depends. So for example, with Fragility Etudes that I just premiered and finished a four-year work, and it, it was the due iteration of it into a music film that Yuka Sihanda um, magically filmed and directed, as well as she's one of the star soloists. They're all very different musicians, you know, especially the two electronic musicians, Robert Aikiabuno and Yuka Honda in there. So my scores for them or their solos are very different and how they read certain motifs when I do conduction pieces is different than what I give to the acoustic instrumentalist. The oral side of it and the, the, the necessity when you bring this hybrid experience, the necessity for rehearsals. I love rehearsals, so anyway, in any situation, it's, just, it's great when you get a lot of players that just wanna play and we wanna play and see how it's gonna grow. And we were in a one-week residency on Claire's project. She had invited us into The Witness by Pauline Oliveira. So we were also rehearsing for our program, for our concert last week, and we were recording in all of these amazing nature spaces. So. The music just kept getting better and better. Yeah, the other half of that question then is how much is pre-notated? Let me think. So with, for example, with Fragility Etudes, 
these are studies in rhythm. So well, back with um, yeah. electronic musicians, so yeah. having them play these polyrhythms, so part of it is graphic and numbers. I am giving them in measures and stuff, and then I give them these phrases, and then I give the freedom to how they want to interpret it. So I don't want to dictate, because they also have to program and move through it differently. So if I have a full ensemble score and I'm conducting it, they can't just come in like acoustic musicians can come in. You know, there's certain things they may have to set pre-program and bring in. And so that could be very stressful for them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I know also on the ensemble score for the conducting that there's certain motifs that are going to work with the electronic musicians. And then sometimes we're going to ask them to enter as a soloist and improvise with that. There's certain phrases that I'm not going to conduct in the moment that quick because that's a stressor for them. You, you also wrote a piece for Kronos Quartet. That yeah. obviously has to be something that's completely notated. <laughs> and with Kronos, I, it was fully scored, but they're also terrific improvisers. I don't know how much improvisation is talked about in classical music. Maybe you could let me know, right? But they, <laughs> the, the, those that I that have that want to spend time making music together with me, they all love improvisation. But that is a fully scored piece. We just took a very brief section where we had some violin and cello in between an embellishment. As Sunny's, well, no, she's she is improvising in that short section right there. I guess where it becomes tricky in the classical music world is if you're dealing with an orchestra, right? Yeah. Because yes. you get two rehearsals and then there's the performance. So everybody's expected to just kind of read through their part. They touch it up in those two rehearsals and then boom, go. The American Composers Orchestra several years ago had this initiative, initiative called ACO Improvise, to try oh. to introduce improvisation into orchestra music. But it's very hard just because of the structures of how it's set up and how it works. And I know, you know you've know you written for ACO, but it wasn't part of that. So I imagine you did a fully notated piece if you had to. But I played as a soloist with it. So I had moments where I was improvising. But no one else was. No, they were fully scored. Which is a whole different aesthetic. When you create collaboratively with people, part of the energy of the composition is to leave space mm -hmm. for others to make it their own that way, which you really can't do mm. unless we rethink how those structures work, which you know some people are trying to do, but it's tricky because it's a lot of people, it's a lot of money, it's time. was an excerpt from Drum Sketch Number 3, again from Drum Sketches on Innova, featuring Susie Ibarra on a wide assortment of percussion instruments 
as well as field recordings from the Philippines. You know, I'm curious when you first immersed yourself in traditional Philippine music and went there and studied it and recorded it. I'm just curious about what that experience was like for you. I mean, obviously your parents came from there, but you were born in California. You were raised in Houston. Did they accept you as a member of the community or were you an outsider or, you know? Oh, I have a lot of family in the Philippines. So it was a really easy homecoming. I think that when I started to go back, because my parents originally sent me on my own as a teenager, they said, you're going <laughs> and, and you'll be back in a month or five weeks. <laughs> this is your ticket. <laughs> your aunt will pick you up at the airport. Wow. When I started to go back as an, uh, a young adult and also a touring musician, I knew it would be a homecoming personally, but I didn't actually realize artistically as an artist what a big homecoming it would be. And I just kept meeting more and more artists, both traditional and contemporary, that I connected. And at one point, I was living the winters in the Philippines. It was like having two, two lives, really. I then also started to do field work where I was recording with seven traditional and indigenous groups and I became friends with a lot of traditional and indigenous artists. I wasn't asking to be accepted, you know, I was really there to make friends and appreciate and document their work that I loved so much. And so with a lot of the traditional artists, I had a lot of friends who were very different, but we got along, so I, I think I think that was that. That was just a small taste of Susie Ibarra's High Wave from her most recent album, Walking on Water, released on Innova in April 2021. I was so thrilled that you also sent to me Walking on Water because it's so moving. It might be a favorite recording of yours for me now. There's just something about it that's so so tender and so fragile and so emotionally charged. It goes from being almost indie rock sounding in the oh. beginning, and then the water takes over. You created this thing as this memorial to the tsunami victims, which was this horrific, awful thing where you know, everybody's deluged and they lost their lives in this. But while it's horrific, it's also extremely beautiful and extremely poignant, the oh. sounds of the water and how they become music, how they become almost a percussion orchestra. It was like a string orchestra of water. Oh, that's so nice that you heard that in the water specifically. I, I love recording water. 
that is an album of spirituals. It should be celebrating. I mean, it is meant to be celebrating the beauty of all of these people and also of these places that are very important. I'm curious, you, you recorded these with an underwater microphone. How does, how does, that, how does that work? So they're hydrophones. You have different kinds of hydrophones. Then obviously they're waterproof and, and you have these cords so you can drop them in. You usually hear more sound if there's a lot of movement in the water. So if there isn't a lot, you may not pick up a lot of movement. One of the places I'm documenting is the River Ganges. Certain places down in the sink, it can be quite slow. If you're not hearing movement of people swimming by or sometimes picking up there's the washing and you can just kind of hear more of the ambience or the rowing, rowing of the, of the, of the boats, you um, may, maybe uh, won't hear a lot. But of course, if a waterfall is raging or coming through a stream or depending if the glacier melt is really strong, so whatever time of season, then it might be really loud. You also use the sounds of water in this fascinating project that you did about climate change that you sent me that wonderful audio file of the sound installation, which makes me wonder, music is such an abstract thing. How do you find ways to attach things to it so that someone hearing it can get these larger meanings, whether it's you know memorializing people we've lost in the tsunami or making people more aware of the dangers if we ignore climate change and don't do anything about it. You know, can music bring you to a better understanding of that? And if so, how? I really believe it can. And also my friend and collaborator, climate scientist Michelle Copes, who's also a glaciologist, she also believes so. So we felt that particularly with water rhythms, listening to climate change, we are personally inviting the listener in to have a more personal experience and to connect because everybody's had a connection to water even if we don't realize the kinds of connections it's pretty profound i started to do transcriptions of the rhythms of these waters and it was mind-blowing frank because we're just playing all these rhythms you know like oh that's a haitian beat over there oh that's a dance beat here. Oh, that's from here. Just, it's all in there. We're just playing all these rhythms. And also the BPM, the, the tempos, which the water flows, it's really the sweet spot of so many popular songs across cultures. That's amazing. So it's like a heartbeat. You know, it really is a life source. Wow. So, you know, the thing is, we don't contemplate. We're just, we take it for granted. We've had it. It is. This is what we've lived in. And we certainly have taken it for granted, right? Can't even imagine that it's not here. Two-thirds of the Himalayan glacier water is going to be melting. I, I, we can't even fathom this. You know, we're so used to I was standing in the other room and this hummingbird just came up. I didn't even have a feeder. It just came up to our window and was buzzing around right there. And Or there's a flower blooming. We can't even imagine that. That's just not going to be there one day. But maybe through music, I often say that, you know, music's abstract, but maybe because it doesn't have direct meanings, it can go deeper. It can reach your subconscious somehow, that it can get in there and affect your emotions and make you 
change the way you perceive the world, ideally. You hear a piece of music, and to you, it'll mean something. It'll take you to a moment. It's powerful, right? Or to a memory, right? That a sound can just immediately bring you there to, some, to an experience that you've had. And this brings us to the end of our episode of Sound Lives with Susie Ibarra. But before we sign off, let's listen to a little more of Susie's trio, Talking Gong, with Claire Chase and Alex Pay. This is from the title track of their new album, available either on LP or as a digital download from New Focus Recordings. I'm Frank J. Oteri. Till next time. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.